This right. is an eight iron, and it's a dead shank. Wow. Way right. Oh, Takes a hop off the path. You gotta be kidding me. Very tough pitch shot right here. You gotta hit it into the hill. One hop up and bite, and it's in. Kind of like that. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. Uh, this week's guest is Richard Zokol, two-time uh, PGA Tour winner, played a lot of his golf in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, has some really great stories of the cast of characters from that era, uh, also really good friends with Mo Norman, and if uh, you're into golf the way we are at Sub-70, you'll know uh, how great of a ball striker and player Mo was in his day and a character, so... Uh, Richard has some great stories of uh, his dealings with, with Mo. Uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. He's seen a lot in his career uh, from the mental side of the game as well and, and whatnot. So it's just a really interesting conversation along with some golf architecture and some work he's done in that arena. It was, uh, it was a very enjoyable uh, hour and 20 minutes with him. Also, uh, feel free to give us reviews on iTunes or any of the other uh, websites that host podcasts that we're on. All that stuff helps us and... Uh, any feedback you guys have, greatly appreciate as well. Without further ado, uh, here's Richard Zokol. Thanks for tuning in. I would like to welcome two-time PGA Tour winner Richard Zokol to the Sub-70 podcast. Uh, Richard, thanks for taking the time today to be with us. Well, thank you very much, Jason, for uh, introducing yourself and uh, asking me to be on your show. Happy to do it. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of like-minded people that follow uh, Sub-70 and follow golf and uh, glad to be a part of it. Thank you. Well, my first question is, in, in my opinion, you have one of the best nicknames ever in golf as, as Disco Dick Zokel. And way before guys were listening to music on you know, their cell phones or, or iPods, whatever the scenario was, you had the Sony Walkman cassette player in the early 80s. And my question is, how did you come up with the idea that listening to music, especially back then, would be beneficial to your practice rounds? Or I know you even did it in competitive rounds. So how did that process come about? Yeah, interesting. Um, it was my rookie year on, in 1982 of the PGA Tour, and I never did it in practice rounds. And uh, basically, um, you know, I got, out on, I got out on tour, and um, I felt a little intimidated. And that's probably not an unusual situation for rookies. And and I knew I was playing well, but uh, I had uh, a, a very hyperactive mind. And, uh, and like a lot of golfers, one of your listeners can relate to that. Anyone who plays golf who can relate to that. And, and, and I kept on getting ahead of myself. I was so anxious and I knew I was playing good golf, but I, I couldn't make a cut. And I knew that what was running through my mind was, was a barrier to my performance. And I had gone... I think six months uh, right from the start of the year. And I haven't been able to make a cut on tour and the pressure was building. I had to get some, get going on it. And then I knew that I had to do something about it. And I, I knew I had to learn how to relax uh, and just play golf. And um, so out of desperation, uh, there was this thing called the Walkman. And I, t I asked myself questions. I said, what do you need to do to relax? I said, well, I listened to music when I relaxed and I had a Sony Walkman. And I said, why to myself, I'm having this conversation to myself. Is why don't you listen to music uh, during competition? And, and then I answered that and went, oh my God, where are everyone going to think? Am I going to be able to, you know, uh, what if I play poorly? And all these trepidation thoughts. So I went to the 
went to the Western Open in Chicago and I chickened out of doing it and, and I missed the cut. And I was so upset with myself, Jason, that I, I just said, I can't stand being a chicken. I have no problem failing. And so the next week was the Greater Milwaukee Open. And I, I, I uh, was teeing off with Larry Rinker and, and Ronnie Black early in the morning on Thursday. And we teed off the 10th hole and I got down there and there wasn't many people out there. And I slapped this Walkman on my head. And, and, and next thing you know, I started to make birdies. I was one, two, three under par. And Larry Rinker goes, wow, look at, look at Disco Dick. <laughs> and then I, so I'm making, I'm three, four, five under par and I'm feeling very calm. And I'm coming down the last hole and I'm seven under par on the, on the coming down the 18th hole. And all these photographers are taking pictures of me while I've got this head, these headphones on. And I couldn't help notice I was just so calm. I was comfortable and I wasn't being rushed or wasn't being anxious. And I shoot 65, get the lead of the tournament. Now the PGA Tour officials are saying, what are you listening to? And they had to find out. They had to call the uh, United States Golf Association, ask PGA Boatwright if this was legal because they've never confronted, been confronted with this situation. And they determined that this was legal. And, uh, and, uh, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to get disqualified. And then the next round I used it. The third round I used it. I held the lead in, in the golf tournament all the way up to the last four holes on Sunday when Calvin Peake won the tournament, but it was a huge step, Jason, in, in letting me really connect with that, how much the mind is and how important it is and how it was destructive to me at, at, a, at, a, at a tour level. And uh, it's something that I focused on from that point on. So that's how I got the nickname Disco Dick. And it was, um, you know, it still sticks to this day, I suppose. What music did you listen to when you were playing around and then why did you then during practice rounds not listen to it and then only listen to it during when you're actually playing tournaments? Well, playing practice rounds is not a problem uh, because that's when the score doesn't count. You know, the way our minds work is anxiety comes in when we really care about something. In this case, it's the score and, 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 and the performance. And uh, so I had no desire to do it whatsoever. I had no need to do it in practice rounds. Uh, I, I, I strictly wanted to do it only in tournament competition where I could get a distraction. I wanted to shut out other players. I wanted to shut out the environment. I wanted to shut out the fans and I wanted to get into the, into the, uh, into my own headspace, so to speak. And, 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 and the present moment as I've learned on later years. And, uh, I, I love listening to rock and roll. I, I typically liked listening to uh, the Eagles at the time. And I was a big rock and roll fan. And, uh, you know, in uh, Hotel California, just it just keeps uh, every time I hear it, it takes me back to that time, and and um, I, I I still love listening to music on the golf course uh, to this day. Yeah, it's interesting how that's kind of become now a part of the guy's warm up, right? Like with and then I enjoy it. I know a lot of guys at our club, especially a little bit of the younger generation, of having it on our carts or whatnot on men's night of playing golf to music. I I can see how it works i personally enjoy it like the it puts you in a more calm state a little bit of a rhythm to it yeah like i can totally see you you were ahead of that curve to say a little bit by about 30 years because there's so many guys who warm up to it now and and like i said as a as an avid golfer i love having music out there so as do i and i think a lot of people do and and then through those decades of of focusing in and spending a lot of time with sports psychologists and really being committed to discovering how the mind works. Um, now we know the answers are, are um, on why that happens. And, and, 
and and the real key uh, secrets to being able to get anyone's performance, and it doesn't matter if you're a tour player or an 18 handicap, is being able to be, is to access the present state or the present uh, moment, the now. And when people do that, that's when they inadvertently play well or inadvertently get into the zone. And anxiety can't exist when you're in that state of mind. The problem is, is we don't get there very much. And, uh, and music triggers that. It, 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 or, or it, you know, when you're playing other sports, unlike, un, other than golf, you're reacting. So you automatically go into that state. You, don't, you can't afford to be very logically conscious. You can't calculate, oh, what's the velocity of this ball coming at me and it's curving. You have to be, you get into what I call a spatial state of consciousness where, you know, if you're a batter in, in baseball and that ball is coming out of the pitcher's hand at uh, 85 miles an hour and it's curving, it's coming at your head, you have to anticipate and react in a millisecond of where you're going to put that bat in order to hit that ball. And, and golf doesn't allow you to do that. It puts you into a very logical conscious state and that's where anxiety it causes you to project forward and build anxiety and then it gets you know out of control that snowball builds and it becomes into the yes so it's um it's a fascinating study and it's an area that i as i think you know that i i love to uh uh um you know and, and i'm in the business of right now and in, in bringing a product to market well, yeah, let's let's dig into that because I know you're working with Mind Track Golf. It's sort of what you do now to help other athletes, you know, get their performance to peak at the right time. So we'll talk about your career a little bit later because it's an interesting subject as well. But let's get into this. And can you let us know how your system works, how you came about, you know, becoming a, a coach or having a system to help athletes? And, and I'm assuming your experience on the PGA Tour yourself has really given you a perspective of how people can improve and what they need to improve because you've played it at the highest level and you've been on both sides of that coin of, I'm sure, sometimes playing your very best and other times not getting the most out of your talent. Yes, absolutely. And, and well, first of all, you know, I'm up in Canada. I'm in, uh, I work at my day job is I, I am a golf and real estate specialist at Predator Ridge Resort in Vernon, British Columbia. It's uh, Canada's most successful development uh, real estate development and uh, been here for for um, six years and uh, love the whole golf architecture and, and development side of it. But uh, my and I on MindTrack, I am launching on the side as a business. I'm the founder and the CEO of MindTrack Golf. And for those listeners who want to find out more about it, um, we have a lovely website that's called MindTrackGolf.com. And MindTrack is spelled M-I-N-D-T-R-A-K golf, mind track golf. And that's not, uh, no, there's no C in there. And it explains what it is. So basically it's a system that I created in 1999 and used it on the latter few years of the PGA tour, 1999, 2000, 2001, 2003. And prior to that, Jason, I was trying to will myself into the present moment in the latter part of the nineties. And I discovered that I just couldn't do it. Uh, you know, when Bob Rotella came out with this past, present, and future, a light bulb went off for a lot of people, including myself. And I went, oh, that, that, I do that. I, that's my problem. And I think all golfers do that. And, uh, and, and so I, 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 when I tried to will myself in the present, I just found out I couldn't do it because every time I got under pressure situations, I default back to 
you know, projecting on the result and, and, and building anxiety. So I discovered that I needed to find a different scoring system rather than the score. And so I created this system where I identified the two most important, what I call key performance markers of every golf shot. And that is your ability to assess the shot in a putt. That would be read the putt uh, or, or pull the right club and choose the right club or the right type of shot. So um, assessing the shot and then executing the shot. And there's a big difference. So, though, so what I do is I would in longhand after every round, every single shot that I hit, I would chart the club that I chose and, and put the value of how I assessed and executed that shot. And there were three value uh, judgment levels, excellent, satisfactory, and unsatisfactory. So going through this period in 1990, I started to get some real good traction on this. And, and, and the whole purpose of this was to detach emotionally from the result or the score. And, and if I could do that, then you just put your sole attention and you can become very good at it. And then that's when you start to um, uh, alleviate this added anxiety. And I think every golfer can relate to that. Every golfer, uh, you know, they, once they find the moment that they're playing above their level, then they project to what score they may or may not uh, shoot that day they collapse themselves and we call that thought sharing. So we've completed a device, it's an app and, uh, and it's uh, what we're doing. So we've developed a systematic metric and protocol designed to correct this thought dysfunction. And, uh, and so I've developed the pro, an, an app, we're in the, in the beta testing stage, we're gonna do that next, next, starting next week. And, um, and basically, it's to develop the thought, the proper thought sequence and thought function to access the present moment. And, uh, and this discipline is very, very important. And every golfer has this problem. And we all know that golf is very much a, a psychosomatic game. Yet there's nothing in the market that really deals with this very important aspect to performance. And I believe the new frontier of performance is is totally rooted in the mind and and that's what mind track golf is going to be coming out to we're going to come out to the market later this year but right now we're just doing we're collecting the evidence and uh in our in our beta testing program do you think some of the the greats uh, just as a speculation a hogan or even like look at dj now on tour did they just naturally have an innate ability to not let that anxiety kick in or do you think they've just you know tiger in his heyday do you think he actually had that anxiety or there's he's so confident in what he's doing and he knows that you know you can't beat him so that goes away or it's not as there as much as the average tour player you know because i'd have to like i always said to you if you go on the PGA Tour and you watch the guys on the driving range you can't tell who's 100th on the money list and 5th on the money list they all hit it great. It, it, it's it's got to be, you know, at that level, boy, the mind has to have a lot to do with it. And I don't know what your thought is. How do the greats remain great? Because you guys were all great to get there. Then how do you take it to that next level? And what do they do to do that consistently? Well, that is the secret sauce. And, and, and we, you know, and I think let's have a quick discussion on Tiger and Dustin Johnson, because they're perfect examples. I'm glad you brought that up. 
but and as I tell young players, you know, in, in, in you know, you're talking about all tour players, and and uh, and and it's the same thing for these aspiring young tour players, and they all hit it ten miles, they all hit it straight, and as I tell them, the only the differentiating factor, what's going to determine whether they make it as a pro. Uh, uh, or not is how their mind functions. And, and, uh, and uh, most people head down the rabbit hole <clears throat> and they get anxiety out of control. And we have a lot of, you know, like we got um, uh, a lot of top players. Um, uh, Jordan Spieth is, is heading down that road. We've watched Tom Watson head down that road and they get disrupted in, the, in their career. So let, let me jump back to Tiger. One of the greatest aspects when he, when Tiger was winning, I think it was whatever, 2003, 2004, when he won those four majors in a row that overlapped the two seasons. So he's coming down, and I recall this at the time, he's coming down the 18th hole. David Duvall is in the mix, and it wasn't sure that Tiger was going to win the Masters. And if he wins it, he's going to be the only person to hold all four majors in a row. So the, the Tiger slam. So no person has ever been there. So Watching him, and I recall watching his body language, because a person's body language is just an echo of what's going through their mind. And I was totally amazed with Tiger's ability to stay calm in that moment. And I believe it's his heritage from his mother, from his you know, Thai background and their Eastern philosophy of meditation. And I think Tiger had, not only was he had the had the physical skills to bury everyone at the time, but he had a mental approach that was second to none as well. And, and, uh, and, and I remember him watching, and I said, he has to be doing some meta meditation. And I was transfixed on his body language. And I was just amazed and more impressed with his psychological ability than his physical ability. Now, when you swing it back to Dustin Johnson today, you know, a lot of times DJ gets a, a bad rap. They say, well, he's not very, you know, sharp or whatever. But his greatest gift, other than his physical ability, is his ability to stay in the present moment. He does it naturally. His, his uh, father-in-law, Wayne Gretzky, who's a, a friend of mine, I've known Wayne. We've had the same manager from the early 80s. And uh, Wayne and I were best men at uh, Mike Barnett's wedding. And so, and, and, and Wayne had this innate ability to stay present, which means he didn't get involved in expectations that were either from himself or others who, who, who he may represent, his sponsors and so forth. His gift every time, and, and it really um, showed up in pressure situations like Stanley Cops. And uh, we're watching DJ, you know, how he handled that penalty that the USGA thrust on him at that moment and how he was able to let it go. Cause most people can't do that. He was able to let it go, stay in the moment, execute those shots. And that aspect of him is, is in addition to his physical attributes of being able to swing the golf club is what's making him such a fantastic and remarkable player. He's got a great gift in that. Do you think that, Knowing Wayne Gretzky, do you think that influence on DJ, where he already had a, a natural ability to do that, do you think that's helped him get to the next level of having that influence around him in his life? Can you see what that that mentorship is sort of done for DJ? Um, I'm a belief. Uh, I saw Wayne a year ago in Banff, and he was talking about you know Wayne, uh, sorry, D, DJ's. Uh, fall at Augusta the previous year 
And, and I think the president, anytime you're around Wayne Gretzky, it's very impressive. Uh, and I think the more Dustin, I think they first of all, I think they both start out with kind of similar mental traits that, that, that they're, they inherently default to Fred couples is the same thing. Fred defaults to, to, uh, his, his, you know, to his intuition and he, tr- they trust it and, and they go to the safe place and DJs that way. And I think that the environment that around DJ, particularly the last few years, both physically uh, with his association with Brooks Kepka, uh, from you know getting a, a, the discipline of getting physically fit, and uh, and the environment of uh, Wayne Gretzky, and I, I'm sure they spent and have a, had a lot of discussions that only reinforces what he's already doing a good job of. So I think that snowball's getting bigger for him, and I think it's what makes him such a fantastic player. Yeah, it's it always amazes me too. You know, it's I think most golfers struggle with the anxiety. I I, I know I have in competitive rounds versus practice rounds where you, you know the fear of failure, not playing to your best level, is is gotten to the point where I had it where I didn't enjoy competitive golf. Lately, I've been able to sort of let it go, but there is sort of a I'm mesmerized by how those guys can just like they said, if you would have given ninety percent of the guys on tour that penalty during the U.S. Open. That it come unglued. Would, yeah. And he just took it and, oh, I mean, I would have came unglued, not that I'm ever playing professional golf, but it would have thrown me off from, from such a lube. And how those guys can deal with that and move on and hit the next golf shot. That's, it, it, as someone who loves golf, I'm just mesmerized on how those guys can do that under that much pressure. And, totally. And, 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 you know, most all golfers, and it doesn't matter if you're a PGA Tour player. I mean, PGA Tour players are gifted athletes. They're really good at golf. But I can assure you, 90% of them don't have a great mental structure. And I am of the opinion that most all golfers automatically default to, and then they habitually reinforce a dysfunctional uh, result-oriented mindset. And, and, and we at uh, MindTrack Golf, we call this golf insanity because you, you're, just, you're perpetuating this loop and you're expecting different results and it doesn't happen. And, and so our product is the protocol that if you follow it, it will develop the thought discipline, the mental fitness to, and you got to have a pro, if you don't have a protocol, you're going to slip down the rabbit hole and you're going to continue down. And uh, so our exercise <clears throat> reconditions your thought process, which inadvertently pulls you into the present moment. So you detach emotionally from results and you put your full attention on um, your ability to assess and execute shots. Now, um, keep in mind too, what we use the term executing shots, which is very different than making a golf swing uh, or, or, or referencing the golf swing, because um, there's another aspect to the game that when you put your attentional focus on the technique of your golf swing, then that's very disruptive too. You've got to learn to let it go and to, and to, to assemble the feel and to pull that trigger. And that's what executing shots are. Assembling the feel is, is getting the assessment and pulling the trigger is the execution. It's such an interesting topic. And like I said, I agree with you. Most people, me, I mean, can learn. And the more you can, like I said, ex- execute to hell with the consequences, you're just going to execute the shot and hit the next one. I mean, that's when we all play our best golf at some level, right? Where it's just exactly. see the shot, hit the shot, execute it, and move on. And, I got to uh, tell you, I got to tell you this one story. In, in, in 2000, and this was my aha moment to start the company. 
back in 2000. It was at the U.S. Open. So I was working on the system. I could tell that I was literally learning how to detach emotionally. Like I didn't care what the score was. I was more excited. I, I developed this excitement to get excellent assessments and excellent executions. So I'm, I'm at the U.S. Open at Pebble Beach in 2000, and uh, and I'm you know I'm had, wasn't playing very well. I make the cut on the nose, and thank goodness there was all these fog delays, and I was able to work on my ability to execute these shots. And I was struggling a bunch that week, and then uh, and then I you know I made the cut on the nose, and then a third round I played poorly, and I just had this freedom. I just you know it's Pebble Beach, it's Sunday at the U.S. Open, it's 2000, Tigers running away with this thing. So I go out there and I'm, I'm having fun. And, I, and I, I, I'm playing with my, my uh, teammate from BYU, Keith Clearwater, and it's Sunday at the U.S. Open. And I turn the front nine in 30. I shoot 30 on the front nine. And, my, and, uh, and I, I don't know that. My caddy says to me, we're walking down the 10th, 10th hole. And my caddy says to me, do you know what you shot on the front nine? And I went, no, I don't. And he goes, you shot 30. And I went, Big deal. I don't care. Over there is um, is Scotty Bowman wearing a USG uniform, <laughs> the great coach for the NHL. And he, I come off the ninth hole, and Scotty says, "Go get him, Richard." And I'm more excited about seeing Scotty Bowman. So I was in a state of of just bliss. I'm going. It's Pebble Beach. It's the U.S. Open. Scotty Bowman said hi to me. I was more excited about that than the thirty I shot, and uh, on the front nine. And, and that day. I was, and the point was, is wow, this is really, I, I really have been able to learn to, uh, to, to detach emotionally from the score because it didn't matter to me. And what I wanted to do was just continue with these key performance markers. And that day I shot 69. And, but, um, you know, so I can, I, I can state, Jason, that I kicked Tiger's butt for those nine holes. You, you got him. You got him on nine. Um, we won't talk about the other no, nine holes. No, but you got him on the front nine the last day on Sunday. Um, doing my research on, on your uh, your career and everything, your college golf team was insane. If you actually look at it at BYU, it looked like a PGA Tour leaderboard. And I know you lived with Bobby Clampett when you were at BYU, and I had Bobby on the podcast. In fascinating conversation. I mean, his knowledge base is so deep. Uh, did did he have that capacity? I mean, he was first off a great player in college, and when he got out on tour, so obviously everyone knows you know that Bobby Clampett. But did you see? Also, that uh, comprehension of golf swing and, and, and the deepness of it and how good of a teacher he was going to be and the influence he would have on teaching back when you guys were in college. Did he have that ability then? Well, I remember coming into BYU in 1977, and I was a walk-on on the team. And, uh, you know, I had written a coach the year before my final year of high school, and he declined me. And then I wrote him again, and he still declined me. And then Jim Nelford uh, called him up in that summer of 1977 and said, you know, you might want to give this guy a try. He's, he, you know, he may not be the best golfer, but he's got something in there that I think you might be attracted to. So anyway, he, he, Carl Tucker, the coach a lot, you know, he gave me the opportunity to walk on. He says, and he told me, he says, I'll put you in the dorm room with Bobby Clampett. And I went, I didn't even know who he was. And I said, you could put me in with Jethro or Ellie Mae. I don't care who. And, 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 and I didn't realize until I got there and, and Bobby was, you know, he won his first two collegiate tournaments, you know, that he played in and he blew the field away and, and he was a first team all American and, you know, I'm a walk on trying to keep up with him. I had, and uh, it was just, you know, he was like t- 
Tiger Woods. He was the next Jack Nicklaus, and and uh, he was he was so remarkable. And um, and and he you know he he was the first team All American his sophomore year, first team All American his his junior year, and um, we had and we started coming into our own around our junior year. Keith Clearwater, Rick Ferrer, Dave DeSantis. We had John Bodenheimer who's now the, heading up the USJ was on our team. And then I, you know, I want to have full disclosure on that. He's one of the greatest guys ever and, uh, and great for the USJ as well. And, and then Plampett turned pro our senior year, his senior year, got on the tour and uh, we were ranked number one, our senior year. And uh, uh, we uh, never lost our ranking. And then we went into the NCAA and I captained the team. We, uh, we won at Stanford in 1981, and um, it was uh, it was just a wonderful Cinderella story. And I think the credit really needs to go to Carl Tucker. He really developed. He was like a father to us. He developed Clampett a, a great deal, as did Ben Doyle. And uh, Clampett became, you know, um, he was such a remarkable player on the first couple of years on tour. And then I think his uh, his 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 uh, logical ability, particularly with the golfing machine, um, it caught up to him and it, he had some struggles thereafter. And then he had a bit of a dip in there, but he broke out on the other side. He's, he's a brilliant mind. I think his book, uh, uh, the impact zone is one of the best books ever read. And, uh, and it's so it's such a good product and, uh, Clampett is a, a remarkable knowledge and, uh, and foremost, a remarkable person. Yeah, like I love it when he's on the the driving range per se at all the major championships that CBS has now of just watching him break down what this player does well, what the tendencies are. He's also great on TV. I think he's a fantastic announcer, and boy, I could just sit there and watch him for hours, you know, explaining why this works and why this player does this. And it's uh, he's deep, man. And it was a great interview, like. Yeah, one of my yeah. favorites. His, his knowledge base is is is, is very high, uh, uh, and uh, and I think uh, you know Clampett is uh, he's been a very close personal friend of mine for all these years, and we have um, we have uh, you know coming out of BYU, and we had a we had a w- wonderful team, and uh, it was just a it was great memories. Your pathway to the PGA Tour, did you? go straight to Q school or did you play a few mini tour events? It didn't take you long to get out there. So how was your sort of journey to get to the highest level of, uh, of golf? Yeah, we had a, it was uh, it was quite fast. Uh, our, our, that spring of uh, 1981, we won the NCAA at Stanford, as I mentioned. And later that summer, um, uh, I won the Canadian amateur in 1981 at Calgary golf and country club then played the U.S. Amateur in, uh, at Olympic Club and missed the cut there and then declared myself a pro the next week. Uh, entered the qualifying, PGA Tour qualifying school and barely got through the sectional qualifying in Denton, Texas, and then went to uh, Houston at uh, Waterwood National, very difficult golf course, and uh, uh, got my card got in the last spot, uh, tied for the last spot, and Hal Sutton, Larry Mize, Paul Azinger, uh came out of a wonderful class, and it was, and then got onto the PGA Tour in uh, 1982. It was the last year of Monday qualifying before the uh, top 125 exempt status, and lost my card, or didn't regain my card back. Had to go to the qualifying school in 1983. That was at... Uh, at Sawgrass, TPC Sawgrass, and uh, finished fifth there, and then um, played the 1983, earned the top 125, and uh, kind of was on my way. So 
and had you know some successes and failures. I had to go back to the qualifying school a number of times and regain my my uh, my status back. And uh, then inevitably in 1992, won a couple times out there, and uh, it's been a been a wonderful journey for me as a journeyman on the PGA Tour. Your era seems different too, as well. And I've talked to some of the younger guys about this. So your era seemed like you kind of you got your card, then you had a mentor, then you learn how to make a cut, a bit of an apprenticeship. Then you go to the next level, then the next level, then you hit your prime in your 30s, and then you have that eight or nine year run where the kids today seem like they come out out of college or don't go to college if they're that good of an amateur, and by the time they get to the PGA Tour. That that meant that apprenticeship is over. They're like firing at pins, making putts, and there is no learning curve anymore. Uh, some of the, the the younger guys, if you look at the the winning, is going down in age. Is that an accurate assessment of how I just described that from your generation? And what do you think changed where these younger guys are winning earlier than say generically from your generation of when you came out on tour? Well, I can kind of put up a, a challenge to that philosophy um, is because, you know, when I when, during my era of that, you know, there was a, a, a Gary Hallberg that uh, got his PGA Tour by card by bypassing the PGA Tour. Same with Bobby Clampett. Uh, same with Scott Verplank. In fact, Scott Verplank, as a collegiate at Oklahoma State, won the Western Open as an amateur. And, and, and so I think there, I think the numbers today are a lot greater in volume. And, and I think that in, in back in our day, the, 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 there were still those examples of players that were coming out of college that could win or contend right in, in that moment um, at, a, at a college, but there's more of them. I think the growth, I think the, the growth in golf and what Tiger's done, it's and the money involved. There's more eyeballs on it. There's more aspirations for people um, from a quantity point of view that are aspiring, and uh, so competition is getting better. And there's more of those players that want to aspire to be golfers today than there was back 30 years ago. So um, I think they, the parallels can be made. There's just a lot more players that are. And, 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 you know, no doubt the equipment is having a, a, an impact on it. The knowledge of performance from a psychological point of view are they're learning it at a younger level now. So when they're, the masses are going to NCAA, they're, they're, they're better prepared, they're, they're better taught, and they're learning faster. And um, that snowball is getting bigger and bigger. And, uh, but it, you can make the argument that those things were happening then, just not to the same, uh, you know, scale as what how it's happening today yeah i guess that's a better way of putting it right you 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 had your guys you know who came out early with impacts but it seems like now there's this is just my observation of there's more younger guys taking less time to to win at the highest level and 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 the style of golf seems a little bit more aggressive than maybe it was from your generation. Probably something to do with the equipment and the ball as well, too, right? Absolutely. I mean, right. I couldn't agree more. I think that's exa- that's a it's a perfect that's a good assessment, Jason. Yes. Well, let's talk about 1992. You had a hell of a season on the PJ Tour with two wins. Um, what did you What did you 
What did you find to take your game to that level to be a multiple winner during the same year on a, on a PGA Tour schedule, which is hard to do? It's hard to win once. You'll let them do it twice. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, you know, my first win was the Deposit Guarantee Classic. Uh, it was opposite uh, the Masters, the year Fred won the Masters, and that doesn't count as an official win. So even though I, I do I'm like to it. say I've, I'm, I'm nah, <laughs> the money a... counted as The money counted as official. Yeah, uh, uh, it's a win and, in my uh, book. But, Oh, thank you. And I, I, I count it too. I count it as two PGA Tour victories. If someone wants to get technical, talk about official victories, then I've got one. So um, it was great uh, that I won that one. But still, uh, you know, it didn't give you an invitation to the Masters. It wasn't official. And then later that summer, uh, it, it gave me good validation or great validation that I was on the right track. And then a, a thing happened the week before Milwaukee. And, and I'll, I'll never forget it that, uh, you know, at, at that point I had... Um, three kids um, and we're renting a house. Our twin boys, Garrett and Connor were probably uh, three years old. Haley was one year old and uh, I couldn't afford and our, my family traveled with me on tour and we're traveling, we, you know, that's five airline tickets and we wanted to keep the family together uh, as much as we could. And then I got a call. We, we couldn't afford to buy, have a home in Vancouver. So we were renting a home and our, uh, the landlord called me up and said, you know, you've got, you got three months, you got to be out. And I was so um, upset that now we got to move again. And I, I, I felt I wasn't being a good provider and, and uh, I was so upset and, and desperate actually. And, and I came downstairs and I was cursing to myself and I said to my, my wife, uh, I said, gee, you know, damn it. I'm going to, I'm going to win next week, you know, and just take control. So I went forward into Milwaukee with a completely different mindset that I've ever had prior and ever or before or after. And I said, everyone is every one of those 155 other people in the field. And it included, you know, Greg Norman and Nick Price and Payne Stewart. I said, they're in my way from putting a roof over my kid's head. And it, it inspired me to a point, Jason, where I just said, they don't even know it, but they don't have a chance. This is what was running through my mind. I said, nothing is going to stop me. And actually, my hair is standing up as I speak about it right now. And I went there and I said, nobody, is, and if, if someone gets in my way, I'm going to knock them over. And I went out there with a, with a complete intention of winning this tournament. And I shot whatever I shot, 60 um, I think 67 in the first round and 71 in the, in the second round. Then I shot 64 in the third round and Mark Brooks was win leading the tournament. He was the defending champion. So I'm in second place at the end. I'm playing with Mark in the final group and I knew I was going to win that tournament. The media's attention was on Mark. Uh, he was the defending champion. Mark thought, you know, he, he wouldn't have much of a problem hang handling me because I hadn't been in this position before. But uh, I went out there and I shot uh, a lovely uh, 67 and won by a bunch. And um, it, 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 uh, it, it, I went out with that, the, that money that I made. My wife went out the next week and uh, bought her first home. So it was, uh, it, I, I, I like to say that it was the desperation that created the inspiration for me to win. And uh, I wasn't able to conjure that up all the time. I wish I could. But, um, but uh, that's what the belief system does for you. Well, and also probably getting it done earlier in the season, right? They're winning breeds winning, and you knew you could do it at one level, and then 
okay, you got it done. And, and then, you know, it's not like you, you hadn't got past that goalpost before. So I imagine there had to be a lot of confidence, like I said, from doing it once earlier in the season. And you're comfortable in that position. It's, it's, it's interesting how they kind of build on each other. It, it was. And then, actually, then a couple of years later, then I slipped back into a very poor mindset where I kept trying to defend my, instead of kind of building these steps of tr- moving on to try and win a major, I, I, I really never had that mindset, which was a, a, a problem. And I, I kept the, trying to defend my position as a, as a champion on the PGA Tour. And that's when my career slid. And it was a terrific learning experience on how, of what not to do. And I figured that out, but uh, it did cost me my uh, exempt status in 1994. And then as I rebuilt it back up uh, into my late 40s and, and, and came back as a, in my early 40s to get my PGA Tour membership back by, via top uh, 15 on the web.com tour, um, you know, those cycles of learning are what I've, uh, I'm putting into this new business called MindTrack Golf. And it's, uh, it's valuable information. I think I've captured something that's quite uh, distinct uh, for um, improvement. Hey, everyone. It's Jason Highland at the Sub70 Podcast. Golf season is getting really close no matter what part of the country that you're in. And hopefully it's warm enough where you're in that you're already playing golf. But if you do uh, need some new clubs for this season, please check us out at golfsub70.com. Uh, from forged irons to forged wedges, hybrids, fairway woods, game improvement irons, we have the whole arena. Also, our new driver, the 839D, should be in stock uh, somewhere right around middle of March. Uh, the guys at My Golf Spy put it through some testing along with the guys at uh, Plugged In Golf also gave it a review. Feel free to check it out. If you have any questions on that or any other product, uh, feel free to uh, reach out to us. Thanks for listening, and I uh, hope you enjoy the uh, rest of the podcast with Richard. Well, let's talk about some of the guys you competed against in the 1980s, which I think is a is a interesting time in golf where all the golf swings didn't look the same, and you had some fun characters in it. So I'll throw a few names out there and just let me know your quick thoughts on them. And uh, these guys usually have a little bit of personality I think I came up here with. Uh, Mr. Craig Stadler. Stads is uh, Stads is a, is an interesting guy. He's a he's a very intuitive golfer. Uh, we all know that he wears his emotions on his sleeve. Um, he uh, if he's not playing well, he will let you know it. I, there's a couple of good stories of of Craig, and I haven't played a lot with Craig, but I played a little bit with him. But I remember in the Hawaiian Open, and the Hawaiian Open used to have on their tees these pineapples, and they were painted gold. And just they got spray painted, and they painted, and those were the tee markers. And, uh, and, and you kind of looked at them and you weren't sure, were they acrylic, were they real pineapples, were they, you know, they, they weren't wood because you couldn't get that definition. And, 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 and Craig hit this poor tee shot, I don't care about what hole, and, and he takes a wild swing at one of these pineapples. And it, being a real pineapple, it exploded on impact in this pineapple juice and chunks of pineapple went spraying into the gallery. And, and, and Craig is a real nice person. And, and he was all embarrassed and apologetic, and I'm sure he got fined, but uh, for conduct unbecoming. But uh, one of the one of the more interesting stories. Roger Mulpey. Roger was uh, Roger's wife and my wife Joni were very good friends out there, and uh, Roger Roger is a, uh, is one of the great characters. I mean, he 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 came out long even before me, and uh, there's all you know. I love the story of him back in the day, and Roger. 
very appropriately was sponsored by Michelob and, and he wasn't bashful about having fun out there. And, and I, I love the story of Roger, you know, the, the, when he won the first tournament, I'm not sure which one it was, it may be uh, Jack's tournament memorial um, um, that uh, in the bar that night, he lost his check. And that was back in the day where they actually wrote you a check and uh, it wasn't wired into your account. So uh, uh, that check was, uh, was, uh, was quickly canceled the next day when Roger discovered it was missing and someone found it, got it back to him. I'm sure that thing is in behind glass and hanging on his wall. So there's so many stories, Jason, on tour. Every, every player out there has a story and it's, uh, it'd be interesting to see if uh, Twitter was happening today and, and, and what would be happening on the PGA Tour if those stories would have gotten out. Mac O'Grady. Mac. Phil McGlenno, um was a good friend of mine and uh, a very different person. He came out of that qualifying school in 1983. He had 17 tries at it before he got out there. Um, you know, um, I love uh, Mac. Um, a lot of people were very scared of him or afraid. My wife was petrified of him. He had these wild eyes and, and the way he talked, but uh, um, um, I played a lot of golf with him and I, and I tried to help him sometimes with his anger issues and, and uh, he would disclose a lot of his personal stuff to a lot of people and uh, um, he has a very good heart. His knowledge is, is, um, is, 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 is wonderful, it's beautiful, it's warm, it's very giving. He's a bit of a short fuse of people who know him and and, uh, you know, and if you if he feels that you kind of betrayed him, he will just cut you off uh, like a like a like a like a hot rock. And uh, and uh, but just a terrific player, just as good a player, almost as a good a player left handed. Yeah, as that's crazy. Isn't a lot it? of people know. Yeah. How you yeah. can do it from both. Yeah, didn't he try qualifying for something once righty then lefty? And there's there's all well, these weird Mac O'Grady stories from back in the day. Yeah. Yeah, Mac, Mac, Mac proposed the situation that he, he, he wrote a letter to the USGA that he wanted to enter the U.S. Open as a pro, obviously, but he also wanted to enter the U.S. Open as an amateur, left-handed. Uh, and w- how would that work out? And what if he got into a sudden-death playoff with, uh, if left-handed Mac O'Grady was a right-handed Mac O'Grady? Would he be able to keep the money if he was in a, played left-handed, keep his amateur status? But so he, he you know, like, yeah. oh my God, you know. He, so great stories on that, and he, he's done a lot of research and just a fascinating study. Lanny Watkins. Lanny was uh, just a, an aggressive player. Uh, he was a great player and uh, a no-nonsense guy out there. I remember when I finished second in the Hawaiian Open. Um, you know, it's, I, I thought I was going to get my first victory. I think it was 1987 or 88. I'm not sure. And I'm playing in the last group, playing with Mark Brooks and, and Lauren Roberts. And in the, in the group in front of us was Tom Watson and a couple other guys. And I mean, we made the turn and I've still got the lead. And, uh, and I had the lead going into the final round. And, and Watson, Tom Watson had just four putted the 10th green. And I knew no one in the group in front was, was in contention. And I was ahead of... <clears throat> By, by quite a bit, Mark Brooks and Lauren, Lauren uh, sorry, Lauren, Rob, uh, Lauren Roberts. I think I said Lauren Thompson, Lauren Roberts. And <clears throat> I'm coming down the last hole, and I'm trying to keep my, my stuff wired tight because I hadn't won at this time, and I'm, I'm not looking at the leaderboard, and, and I figure my best chance to win is just to stay one shot at a time and not get ahead of myself and not look at the leaderboard. And I'm beating everyone around me, and I'm coming down the 18th hole, and I say to my caddy, and I, I think I've got this. I think I've got this, this, this win. And, I'm, and I, I'm steadfast to my commitment to not look at the score. And then on the second shot, and I've got a two iron into the last hole at Wileye, 
and I know I can make a birdie here. And I say to my caddy, what do I have to shoot? What do I have to make here in order to win? And I'm hoping he's going to say, make a par and you win by two. So it's going to be easy. And he goes, you need to make Eagle to get into a playoff. And I went, ah, no, no. And I go, who's this? He goes, Watkins, Lanny. He's, you know, he shot a low number and he's in there. And and I almost made the Eagle and had a chip for Eagle uh, for my third shot and left it about six inches short right in the middle of the hole. But Lanny was a fierce competitor. Uh, He he was someone you didn't want to go up against if you – you didn't have to, and uh, but if, at the same time, if you were able to beat Lanny, it was one of those things where you felt uh, you you felt even better about yourself because you took someone down who was uh, very strong. I got two more here for you, and one guy I got to ask because he's just I don't know why, but this guy was always my favorite player growing up, Tommy Armour the third. He just had an aura about him, um, fun to watch play. So I don't know if you have any good TA three stories. TA, yeah, we we were the same year. He played at New Mexico, exact same year. So as when I, we played at BYU, same age. And TA was just, you know, when he got out on tour, he's just morphed into uh, Mr. Cool. He was always, you know, you know, a, a calm guy. He had a very quick rhythmic swing, and he was a great player. Tommy has a, a great knowledge about the game and. Uh, and um, uh, I, I admire him for his ability, his ability to play. He had the lowest uh, score in the history of the PGA Tour, if it's still holding to them, maybe not, but uh, he certainly had it for a long period of time. And, um, you know, and he didn't mind. He liked that, uh, that nostalgic look of having that cigarette hang out of his mouth. He wasn't uh, bashful about having a good time. Uh, he enjoys life. He's true to himself. Uh, you know, he's not trying to be someone he's not. And uh, I, I think T.A., I saw him. I saw him down in Vegas a couple. I think it was last year. And um, he's, he's the same old T.A. the third and, uh, and uh, just a terrific guy as well. Uh, last one I got here, and I know you have a good story about it at Cypress Point, but uh, the greatest of all time, Mr. Mr. Nicholas. Um, oh, yeah. 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 Well, Jack, I played with Jack. And I got the pleasure to play with him in the final round of the 84 PGA at Shoal Creek. And that was just a treat. That was just a complete treat for me. He's just a great, great gentleman. Him and Barbara are fantastic people. But um, um, this was a time. So this was, I think, in 19, I just got back. I'd lost my card the year before, you know, dropped out of the 125, had to go back to the qualifying school, got my card back. And it was the first tournament of the year at, at Pebble Beach. And we were still playing Cypress Point at the time. So on Mondays, Jim Nelford, my traveling buddy on tour, and I would always go play Cypress Point on Monday morning. So we'd always go out there. And so we're about to tee off, and, and uh, there, was this, uh, there was a guy who was going to join us, and he was an amateur in the field. He was an investment banker from New York. And we jumped on the tee in front of um, Jack and Howard Clark. <clears throat> and Howard Clark was a, a, a British Ryder Cup player at the time, good player from England. And, uh, and we jumped in front of them and they said, go on. And, and, uh, and it was a particular foggy day at Cypress point. And I was in, uh, 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 just a, a giddy mood, a practical joking mood and having a lot of fun. I was so appreciative at Cypress point. I'm back on the tour and I'm feeling great. And, uh, so the fog rolls in on the 16th hole, the famous Cypress point par three. And I'm going, I'm going to, and I said to Jim, I said, go and talk to the marshal. He's hanging around by the little tree out there. And I says, I'm going to play a practical joke on Nicholas. I'm going to put his golf ball in the hole. I'm going to stand on the green because the fog came in. And when you stood on the 16th green, all you saw was a fog bank 20 feet in front of you. And I knew that the gallery 
uh, wasn't going to walk up to the green because he couldn't see his shot. They were all going to hang by the tree. So this in, the amateur we're playing with, he goes, I don't want any part of this. <laughs> he, he buckered off down the 17th hole. So I'm standing on the 16th green waiting for a ball to come on the green. And I'm getting a little nervous. I'm getting a little anxious. And finally, his ball lands on the green. And it's a Spalding Tour edition. So I know it's not Jack's because he's playing McGregor. And I know it's Howard Clark's. So I grab this ball, put it in the hole, and run like hell down the 17th fairway. Now, we're playing with history here. And, and I'm going, we better do something about this. And, and, we, and we leave a note. And I say to Nelford, I say, you're in with me with this and, and uh, on this, I, I, you know, cause I don't know how Jack's going to take this. So, um, uh, but it's not his ball. It's, it's, it's his playing partner's ball. So we leave a note on the 18th tee on a scorecard said, Howard, welcome to the PGA tour. Sign the crazy Canucks that being Jim Nelford and I. So right. we wait around on the 18th hole. They come up and Howard, and I've got this smile on my face and Howard's got a big smile on his face. And he says, I didn't make a hole in one on, and, and I'll keep in mind, Howard Clark never played Cypress Point. He thinks he's hit this three wood in, into the fog bank. One of the most famous par threes in the hole. And they find his ball in the hole. And then I forgot to mention that we were on the 17th green when we heard the yell of the crowd, when they finally discovered the ball in the hole, the roar went up and we went, that's when we went, Oh, but we better do something about this. So Howard comes up and goes, I didn't make a hole in one on 16. Did I? I said, no, you didn't. And Jack comes up. And he goes, what are we going to do about this bet? Oh, like, no. You know, we have a little bit of side cash. I'm going, oh, no, I got Jack's upset. And, and then later that week, Jack always uh, visited with the Golf Writers of America at their annual event. And he told the story. And, uh, and then actually, Jack also told the story, that same story, I think about a year ago in Golf Digest. So I'm tickled to death that Jack remembers this story this practical joke that uh, myself and Jim Nelford played on him. And, uh, and he was a great sport about it. And it was uh, just another, one of those fond memories, uh, uh, being able to play a practical joke on, on the greatest of all time. Uh, another character and, and wonderful, I mean, some say it's the best ball striker that ever lived. Mo Norman. I know you, you got to know Mo a little bit and, how good was his ball striking when you saw it? And then what can we learn from Moe's golf swing and why it works so well? And what do you think kept him from being able to play the, the PGA Tour successfully for an extended period of time? I know he did it for a little bit, but probably, you know, with his talent level, never long enough to see what he really could have done with the talents he had. Right. Yeah, there's no doubt. Mo, Mo was, uh, I got to know Mo, and actually the first time I really got to know him was in the 83 PGA Tour qualifying school at Sawgrass. So I just finished my PGA Tour year and uh, on uh, and first PGA Tour year. And then Mo would always go down to Titusville from uh, Toronto in the winter times and spend his time down there. And then, you know, I hadn't, didn't know Mo at the time and obviously watched him and caddied in the same group as him in the CPGA when I was a teenager um, and, um, and, and totally admired him and, and knew of him. He was legendary up in Canada and then in my in the qualifying school, Mo, I guess, wanted to figure out who this Richard Zoko fellow was. So he decided to watch me uh, play in the qualifying school. So in the first round, he was there. He was a hundred yards from me on every single shot. And I'm going, oh my God, Mo's coming to watch me. If this, you know, as if this PGA Tour qualifying school wasn't pressure enough, I right. got Mo watching me, and I played really well. And and uh, 
and he introduced himself after the round and I was honored that he would, you know, spend time and even put, uh, and by putting it on me. And he was there through that whole week. And, and so I, I befriended him at that time. And then in the following year, he um, at Bay Hill, I got to know him really well. And he introduced Clay Edwards, uh, who, who became my coach at uh, that time. I wanted Mo to help me out. And Mo said, this guy will help you. This guy will help you. This guy will help you. And uh, Clay, you know, from that point on, and he's still my coach to this day. But Mo had some challenges. Uh, his golf swing was, a, you know, obviously a one-plane swing. He didn't hit it very far. Um, he, he, you know, he had that in the same type of golf one plane swing as we're seeing with uh, Bryson DeChambeau today. Um, <clears throat> Mo had some mental challenges, and and um, he was not he was socially inept. Uh, and I, I, you know, and I, I love the man. And uh, but you know, when you saw him, um, he, he couldn't function very well in front of other people. And, um, and that held him back. He, he came out to play the PGA Tour back in the early days. And, uh, and the uh, norm of the PGA Tour, they just ran him off. Uh, you know, he got to play. He won the Canadian Amateur and got an invitation to play the Masters. <clears throat> and uh, one of the stories of the Masters is he didn't want to take a caddy. And there was a tug of war between, you know, the caddy master and him with his golf bag. He said, you have to take a caddy. He says, no, I'm carrying my own. And they're back and forth pulling on this golf bag. And, um, and, and there's so many stories, and, and some of them are, in fact, true. Most of them probably are not. Um, but Mo was, uh, you know, he and George Newton were the preeminent ball strikers in Canada. Both of them uh, did not like putting very much at all, and they despised it, in, in fact. And, um, and they were uh, serious about their ball striking and they played a lot of competitions that just involved their ball striking only and they would just totally neglect the putting. And, uh, but Mo, was, Mo wouldn't have fit in. I think in his la- it's wonderful to see that in the latter part of his years that he became un- better understood and accepted and, and, and also loved. So uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great story. It's also a sad story. And, uh, but uh, he, he passed away as a loved by um, a lot of people and, and uh, it's important that his story does get out yeah i agree with that right i think in the 90s he sort of got his due of you know i remember back in those days of getting golf digest and looking at the golf swing and just you know marveling on how efficient it was how there was just yeah. like no wasted motion or nothing to go wrong with it it was just turn turn and it was yeah i think it's kind of cool that he got his due from the ball striking standpoint of what we could kind of learn from it and, and how good it truly was. It's, it's, it's a cool story at the end that he kind of, he kind of got what he deserved in the sense of the respect from, I would say the golf world per se. Absolutely. And 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 one of the other stories about Mo was always at the Canadian open. So clay would come up and and clay Edwards uh, from Houston, Texas was one of the few that, that Mo allowed into his world and uh, they, they spoke about golf philosophies and swings and, and, and clay was, very similar to Mo and, and at the Canadian open play would travel with you as instructing Jim Nelford and myself. And you know, he, he instructed Mike Weir for a period of time and clay would come up to the Canadian open every year. And, and, uh, and another story actually involved clay. So what would happen? Mo would show up, you know, it would be, it'd be Tuesday and we're on the driving range and we're hitting balls and, and um, on the range at Glen Abbey. And, and we're kind of saying any sign of Mo yet? And said, no, well, he should be here pretty soon. Then, then, then Clay would say, oh, there's Mo. He's behind the ropes in the gallery. 
And then we'd kind of acknowledge him, wave at him. And then the next thing you know, he'd be at the front rope and then we'd be hitting some more balls. And the next thing you know, he's under the rope. <clears throat> and uh, then the next thing you know, he's a little closer and he's moving up. And, uh, and so I'd say, um, Mo, here, start hitting the, hit, hit, hit some balls for us. He go, no, 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 I don't want to do that. So then he'd come a little closer and he'd be right standing right by my bag with Clay Edwards and Mo Norman and we're hitting balls. And, and so what I would do would be in a conversation, we'd talk about something, and then I'd just gradually step out of the hitting bay there and I would just hand the club to Mo. I wouldn't say anything. I wouldn't say, Mo, hit some shots for me. I'd just hand him the club and step aside. And Mo would pick up the club and step in to the pile of Titleists and he'd start hitting golf balls. And he started, you know, this is how the ritual would go. And then I would leave the, the Mo there and I'd go up and down the, the line and say, Mo's hitting balls, Mo's hitting balls. And then guys would start coming out. And uh, the only person who wouldn't come out was Mac O'Grady. Mac wouldn't do it. He, you know, he, and, but, you know, Nick Price and Trevino and, and uh, you know, Fred Couples and everyone would kind of circle around Mo and they'd watch him hit golf balls. And, uh, and, and, uh, you know, that was a story. Then the other story, this was great. This was in 2000 and 2000 at the U at the Canadian open where, where Tiger played. It was the year he, Tiger hit that remarkable yeah. shot. There Six. was some rain delays. And I, we've got a picture of this. So where there's a rain delay and it was just the, the golfers were launching back out to get back to start play. And as you know, that during this time, there was this consolidation of players about 15 minutes. Everyone had to head out. And all the players were on the putting green. And Moe's right there on the putting green. There's Tiger Woods. And Moe's eyes are just locked in on Tiger. And he's, uh, he won't keep his eyes off Tiger. And everyone, all the PGA Tour players, and I'm, I'm down there playing as well and hitting my putts. And everyone's into their own business. Tiger's head's down, focusing in. And Clay Edwards is right there. And he's going, oh, my God, there's Tiger Woods. There's Moe Mo Norman. And they're, they're 20 feet from each other. And never will these two famous people pass again and 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 clay couldn't stand it anymore and he just yelled out he yells out tiger woods meet mo norman mo norman meet tiger woods and he screams this out tiger's head pops up goes on a swivel and there's mo looking at tiger and their eyes lock on and tiger takes these five steps with his head hand held out and shakes Moe's hand and says, nice to meet you. We capture a picture of this and they say a few niceties at that moment. Tiger goes on to um, uh, hit a few more putts and then goes on. So that moment happened. It, 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 uh, it was a wonderful moment for both Tiger Woods and Mo Norman and the history of golf. And it was uh, created by my good friend, Clay Edwards. Yeah, such a cool story, right? Like just two legends. Yeah, they have to meet each other, right? They're in the same moment, same time. Um, it's got to oh, be a it, it would have cool been a picture. shame if they. If it would have been a shame had they not. Absolutely, and uh, that was one of the. That might be the best golf shot I've ever seen anybody hit under pressure. Was that six iron out of that trap to that that pin to win it? Is was insane to say the least. It was. It was unbelievable. Golf course architecture. Um, I know you work in this arena and. My first question on this is what really makes, in your opinion, a really good golf course and what can make a bad golf course? Well, um, I, at the end of my career, in two, which was 2003 in the PGA Tour, I, I wanted to become a golf course architect. And, and uh, 
And uh, but I knew at the same time as a journeyman, no one's going to be knocking down my doors to help to help them build a golf course. So I built, I created one, I developed a golf course called Sagebrush, and um, and, and so I was totally gobsmacked by how fantastic this new genre of golf course architecture was that started with sand hills i to, to talk about the story remember ben crenshaw showing me story showing me photos of this golf course that he and bill coor were building in in nebraska so i'm assuming you've, you've, me, you've played it right yes i played it too yeah. I, it blew me away the first time i played it well, I was. This was in the late '80s before it was open, and, and, and Crenshaw was telling me, and I'm kind of going, "I'm not getting this. I'm not getting this at all." And Crenshaw's enthusiasm about how this golf, all these holes at Sand Hills, were just fantastic. And then, you know, I, I'm going, "Okay, these are just blowouts, you know, like uh, erosions in the middle of nowhere," and I couldn't see what the big deal was. So. Later on, you know, Sand Hills gets built, and I see this wonderful acclaim that Sand Hills was. And then, and then in 2000, which spawned Bandon Dunes and Mike Kaiser to go get David McClay Kidd and Tom Doak and Jim Urbina. And I'm going, and then I, when I first played these courses, both Sand Hills and the courses at Bandon Dunes, I just went, oh my God, <clears throat> these are remarkable. This, this is what golf is. And I played a lot of golf at the old course at, in these Dunhill Cups. And I'm going, this is, this is remarkable stuff. And, oh, by the way, they cost about a quarter of what a conventional golf course. So I'm going, this is, so this is around, the, you know, around 2001, 2, and 3. And I'm going, this is what I want to do. So I wanted to, for my, my own selfish reasons in, in, in my next career, is create a – bring together – the remarkable golf of a Bandon Dunes course or a Sand Hills golf course with its remarkable playability and marry what was, uh, what I believe the best golf uh, clubhouse experience in called Red Tail in London, Ontario. Um, that's just a, a stunning clubhouse and has this wonderful intimacy. And I felt that if I was able to combine both these golf course and, and clubhouse, it would really go a couple of notches higher than anything else in Western Canada or in Canada period. And it would be located in Western Canada. So I endeavored to do that. So what I, to answer your question, what I believe is uh, what makes a great uh, uh, golf course. And there's, there's a big separation, Jason, in, from my opinion, what I call conventional golf. And you know, it's what Jack does and Arnold and Fazio even in Canada, Thomas Broom. And, um, and this new genre of architecture called minimalist design. And, you know, Bill Coor and Ben Crenshaw get it. Tom Doak gets it. Jim Urbina, Gil Hans, you know, and, and, and there's a big separation. First of all, they're able to find a remarkable piece of land where Mother Nature has, you know, put it already on the ground. And then they have to be a type of architect that it's called design build where the decisions are made on the ground and the guys on the bulldozer are the guys who are creating the golf uh, that includes the ground game. And uh, we're watching some remarkable golf being built today by those names, Doak, Urbina, Gil Hans, Crenshaw, Coeur Crenshaw leading the way. And I just love this type of golf course architecture. Rod Whitman in Canada as well as another. Yeah, I it I, I played Sand Hills in 2007, and it changed my perspective of, you know, 
Medina three is a great golf course. And so is Butler national, but I always thought like, that's the apex of it. I went out there and the creativity, how it changes each day based on wind. It, it blew me away of how fun and how great the architecture is. Um, yeah. Once you kind of see that it, it kind of opened up your horizons. And for me, it also brought into my love of Seth Rayner golf courses and, you know, with some width off the tee and the, the, the bunkering, the way they did it. I, I, I'm assuming if you love Sandhills, you're also a fan of the golden age architecture as well, what those guys created it. And it's just absolutely brilliant. I think it's the most interesting and fun way to play golf. And, and I think the great part is a really good player can enjoy it. And also a, a, a 20 handicap can get around a Seth Rayner golf course or even Sand Hills or something like that. I don't know if you feel the absolutely. same way. Yeah. It's, a- uh, absolutely. And I, and I think also what happens, and because those golf courses have had the, the fortunate um, uh, aspect of time works in their favor, I think even poorly designed golf courses, you give it 100 years of play and it will start to uh, morph into playability. You know, the sandblasting and it creates this dynamic lines. And, and uh, so there's that. I think a, a golf course is a living uh, uh, you know, uh, thing and, and that evolves over time and gets better with more playability. <clears throat> and I remember when I started Sagebrush as the, as the developer and co-designer of it, to, you know, I wanted Bill Coor and Ben Crenshaw to do it. Uh, uh, ben said they couldn't do it. And he recommends that I choose Rod Whitman for the design. I had Tom Doak and Jim Rubina came up to, to uh, do a routing and and then I inevitably decided on Rod Whitman and then I brought in my good friend Armin Suni who has who was the superintendent at uh, assistant superintendent at Marion who's the head superintendent at Cherry Hills and Castle Pines and uh and and uh and um you know the great um, course in 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 uh, in Vegas and uh, then he started his own development or headhunting business where he would headhunt superintendents for some of the great courses in, in the United States, like Medina and uh, Southern Hills and so forth. And, uh, you know, we had this amalgamation of architecture and maintenance and, uh, and construction. And um, it was, uh, it was just a, it was a fantastic thing. I thoroughly enjoyed it. But then when the crash hit in 2008, the economic hit, there wasn't going to be a lot of new courses built. So I decided that that wasn't a direction I was going to continue to go. And uh, there just wasn't going to be anything left to, for other than the best architects like who are Crenshaw, Doak, and Urbina. And, uh, you know, there wasn't much left over for the rest of us. So so what's the history or what exactly happened with Sagebrush? Because I remember this happened and it got wonderful reviews, incredible when it first opened. And then at the end of it, it kind of turned into a a lawsuit circus between everybody. So is the course open? Like what's the cliff notes version of the beginning, the middle and is, sure. the, is the course is not open any longer, correct? It is not open right now. It's uh, it's still stuck. The, the owner, the current owner of it is, um, is court ordered to be extradited to the United States. The FBI want him for fraud charges. So, um, um, he's in court. He's, uh, he has his right to appeal. He's appealing it right now, but um, that's where it's stuck, and it hasn't been open for three years. And how the order, how it originated. So, um, I was the uh, de, uh, uh, the founder of it and the owner of it, and uh, I put this business plan together of building a golf course that was going to be, as I mentioned, this Bandon Dunes type of a golf course meets 
this remarkable private uh, des- uh, uh, destination. And uh, I was able to raise capital from uh, private uh, uh, investors to fund the project where the capital was advanced and it was secured against the real estate of these 37 um, estate lots on 400 acres. So uh, we op- finished the golf course in two- the fall of 2008, right when the economy just tanked. We opened for business in the spring of 2009. So at that time, the lenders uh, um, was a group that uh, uh, that said they put up all the money. Obviously, the right thing to do was pass on the equity of the golf course to them. And I had what was called the, the Class A share, where I had the 51% controlling vote. And I put together the structure that I would be the benevolent dictator of, of Sagebrush. And, um, and so, but it was the right thing to do to, these guys had the capital to complete it in spite of the bad economic uh, environment. And so all the equity got shifted to these guys, rightly so. And we had an opportunity that if we were successful in earning it back and earning their money back, then the, their shares would, would uh, go back to um, as the original structure. And uh, so, and that wasn't, that didn't happen. So I stuck around as a chairman uh, for uh, 2009, 10, 11, and 12. And a situation happened that was, that, uh, that I uh, thought was uh, deceitful and, and uh, my claim again, when I left in 2012, because of this, what I perceived to be deceit, um, I left and started to work for Predator Ridge. And then a couple of years later, kept gnawing at me and they owed me a bunch of money. So I laid a, a, a claim against them and sued them. And they turned around, they had a lot of money, these guys, and they turned around and, and, uh, and um, uh, countersued me for $42 million. So that was, it was and, and, and that was an interesting thing, Jason, onto on its own. So we banged around and my father taught me to stand up to bullies. I felt this was a, their, their case had no merit. So we banged around in court for a couple of years and then finally, there was an offer made to me, and I accepted, and we settled, and everything got settled in 2014. It was sold to the current owner now, and now this fellow, unfortunately, is having um, some legal battles of his own. And uh, I'm hoping at some point sooner rather than later that Sagebrush will fall into the hands of someone who can love it and complete it and realize the vision of what a great golf course. Now, this golf course was rated the best new course, Canadian course in Canada in 2009. And it was just, it's a remarkable course. It was the first minimalist course in Canada, uh, modern minimalists, and very proud of it. Is it is it too far gone where they'd have to take a lot of work to get it back to where it would need to be? Or is the bones of it still good enough where with a little bit of tender, loving care, that thing could be back to, you know, to the level that the course should be at? Is it... Uh, a huge project to bring it back at this point, or is it something that's relatively doable in the future? Oh, I think it's doable. Um, um, there's a court order for the lender to sell it. So that this might happen sooner rather than later. Um, and the bones are in place. I think now one of the things that's, and I, I pop my head into it from time to time to just see what kind of, play, uh, you know, what kind of state it's in. And uh, the, the, the bent grass has overcome the whole golf course. Uh, and um, which makes the playability of it very different. The fine fescue fairways made it very fast and firm and fast. Right. And we did have uh, bent grass greens on there, and they were the most perfect greens you can imagine. Armin Suni's um, 
oversight and and and, and creating the, the the maintenance structure of it. Just they were the most perfect greens I've ever putted on. And um, but it would take a little bit. It takes a little bit. I think uh, I, I, if I had anything to say in the matter, it strip it back and, and reseed the fairways to a fescue. And, uh, but we're talking huge greens. We're talking, we, there's two greens on this site, site Jason. There's 22,000 square feet. I mean, we're talking, you know, literally the, uh, you know, some of the, you know, the size of some of the greens at the old course at St. Andrews. So right. it's just a, a treat to play. Well, speaking I have uh, of the old course, I have one last question here for you where I, we were going back and forth, and I, I can't quite figure out how you pulled this off, but you had the old course to yourself for basically a day, and everyone I talked to puts the old course, I haven't played it yet, but top two or three in the world. It's just there's something about it, and I'm sure, I'm guessing you feel the same way. So how in God's name, as popular as that is, did you get the old course to play kind of all day long, basically, with limited people out there and pull that one off? Limited? No, there was no people playing, just me and my caddy. So, so just understand the situation. I love this story. Um, um, the old course is, is open to the public for picnic on every Sunday, right? And I think a lot of people know that. You cannot play golf on Sunday. It's, it's, it's a public facility, and people walk their dogs. They lay down their, their, their quilts and have picnics all over the golf course. So on Sunday, you only play golf on Sunday is uh, when the Open Championship is held at the old course or when the Dunhill Cup Championship is held at the old course. And this is the old Dunhill Cup. It was played on, you know, that for the week. So the contract with, the, with the, the Dunhill Cup was that the golf course is closed to contestants from Sunday to the following Sunday. So, and now keep in mind, there's only 16 countries in the Dunhill Cup. They're three-man teams. So... Um, so I decided to go representing Canada, playing in the Dunhill Cup, to go there early. I wanted to get there Saturday night or get there Saturday so I would play uh, the golf course on the Sunday. And, and so uh, I get there, and my caddy is uh, a fellow by the name of Rick McKenzie, who is the head caddy master at the old course. He wrote a wonderful book called uh, Winnie Niff at the Jigger Inn that uh, is quite famous. And so we go out there and, and, and it's closed except for contestants. And I happen to be the only contestant there that day. All the other contestants are either in Europe or wherever or playing in the final round or in the final round of the week before. So there were no contestants on site except for me. So I went, wow. And it's a beautiful sunny day. And I tee off about nine. I have a lovely breakfast at the old course hotel uh, muster Rick up and we, we tee off the first hole and the starter says, Richard, you're going to be the only player on the old course for the whole day. Cause there are no other contestants that are even in town. So, and I'm going, Oh my God, I remember walking down the second fairway and I don't know, some of your, your listeners may recall on the old course hotel, they used to say this Latin saying carpe diem, which means seize the moment, seize the day. And I'm walking down the second fairway and there's Rick McKenzie and I, and it's a beautiful clear day and the wind's about 10 miles an hour, meaning it's very calm. Yep. I'm going, I've got the old golf course to myself for the whole day. So we spent out about eight hours there and I'm going, this is never going to happen to anyone in the history of golf. And I'm going, this is just the most amazing day that I have to remember, obviously for the rest of my life. And, and, uh, and I remember hitting, you know, I was, I was hitting this shot with my five wood, I had this old railer five wood, and I'm 
I'm banging it from 50 yards off the green uh, for the wind shot when it comes up. And I remember using it from about 80 yards on my second shot to the 18th hole on the final hole. And I'd bang it and it would just trundle along with all the speed, run through the valley of sin up to the pin placement. It was just a wonderful shot. So, and, and, and Rick McKenzie called it his, he says, they hadn't seen anything like that. And he says, well, try your, your links wedge, laddie. He called it his, the links wedge. And uh, it was my five wood that I banged on the fairway. So had, had great memories with uh, Rick McKenzie and the old course. And that's the story. And I'm, I can't imagine it, that it happened ever again, Jason. And that's going to be really interesting to see. That's a great story, right? But to have that all to yourself, like I said, it's not going to happen. But it's going to be really interesting to see with that golf course when the next Open Championship is there of how it's going to play with, you know, having to take – property from the new course to make it long yeah. enough. I, I, I hope that thing doesn't get to the point where it's just a pitch and putt for the best players in the world because, boy, I love watching that on television and, and yeah. you know the holes and the history. It's I hope they can keep it intact where it, where it, it doesn't turn into, you know, a driver wedge on every hole, essentially. So it's going to be interesting to see how they tackle that in the future. I Well, I think it to a large degree, it already has. And the only defense to it is, is, is the wind and perhaps having a strong gale coming in different directions every day. Because if it's benign, it, it, it will be such a short golf course in spite of the length that they've had to um, attach to it. And, uh, and, and, you know, the way the golf ball runs, the way fast and firm, it just, it just shortens it up to no end. And I think the, the players will, and the scores will reflect it. And it, uh, the only hinge on the thing, as I mentioned, is, is the wind. So, um, uh, you know, I'd like to see uh, the barometer of the old course. Uh, you know, I am of the opinion, I'm such an old school guy, that I would like to see a combination of dialing things back on the, on the equipment and get, bring bifurcation in and uh, for the professional levels and bring back some life to the old course and let that be kind of the, the medium in which, um, you know, equipment, and, uh, you know, causes, you know, can have that proper balance of uh, technology versus skill. Yeah, exactly. Right. Wouldn't it be cool to see a, a men's major championship at Chicago golf club of a great design like that, but you know, it's 6,700 yards at the most, you can't do it right now. So Right. You know, it'd be fun to see those guys take that on with a ball that spins a little bit more and, you know, the driver might go 265 off the tee. You could make it work. But at, at today's point, you, some of these greats of the world of classic Golden Age architecture, you, you, you just can't. You know, that's why they had to right. have a senior ladies uh, open championship there last year. And that that played well for the length of the golf course. You know, they made it a little shorter yeah. than that. But, no, I hope we don't lose that either. Some of these iconic golf courses, you know, I want I want my kids to be able to say I saw a major championship on that track as well. So it's going to yeah, be Exactly. And, I, and Mike Clayton down in Australia is fighting up a good fight. We're kind of uh, of the same mindset. And uh, we support each other and we fight. I don't know if we're going to get it, but uh, it'd be nice to see. The, the USGA has got a, a bunch of problems on their hands, and they've got to figure that one out. And the RNA, they've got to figure out whether that's going to happen because – um, you know, as we see in the way everything is going, you can't make everybody happy, but uh, um, uh, we'll, we'll just have to wait and see how things work out. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I, I greatly appreciate you being on the podcast, and I truly enjoyed the conversation. So best of luck with everything, and um, thanks for your time.
Well, Jason, thank you very much. I, I, um, um, as you can tell, we, we have a lot of passion and there's a lot of like-mindedness and there's a lot of listeners out there that, that are passionate about the game. And uh, I can't thank you enough for having me on your show.